Bring it on back now, you hear? Welcome to the show, folks. Welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, Shane LeMaster. And uh, first, I want to say thanks for listening. Please continue to uh, like and share our stuff on social media and go to our YouTube uh, page where you can find video of most of these podcasts. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S dot com for the website or the Mind Ops YouTube is still M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S. Thank you for coming back and welcome to the show. Today's good news story doesn't come from anywhere in particular except for from my own brain. Um, so this may be news to you. Maybe you've thought about this, but um, uh, actually, let's do this a little bit different. So I'm going to um, 
give you some good news about uh, what I've been seeing around communities. So you all know about the uh, toilet paper shortages, um, this crazy behavior that people did when um, when they first started hearing that we might have to shelter in place. Everyone went out and bought as much freaking toilet paper as they could, leaving the stores um, almost bare or bare for many weeks. Uh, I know my local uh, grocery store was bare for many weeks. I'm glad I had some storage. Um, but anyway, that story is not new, and that story was horrible. But um, what I've been seeing recently is uh, products returning to the shelves. People are starting to come to their senses. And um, I initially posted something on, on the behavior that was going on, the toilet paper stuff. Um, and it made a lot of sense, this article that I read until I shared it. And it was about uh, how people, you know, when... When we, when the circumstances of our life or our culture or our um, communities drop to a place of survival, so, uh, you know, big natural disasters, floods, pandemics, all these things, as soon as your community feels like, oh shit, we're, we need to switch into survival mode, uh, our level of consciousness actually lowers. Um, it goes to a different level of consciousness. Um, Whereas, you know, every day, day to day, most of our survival needs are met. And so we have a lot of time to instead uh, focus on and oftentimes worry about other things, things not related to our survival. I'm sure you can all think of some things that you used to worry about before this thing that just seem uh, insignificant today or just not as important. So when circumstances change and we get forced into this place of survival, you know, our consciousness moves levels to that level of survival in order to cope with um, the situation. Uh, I mean, you, it's very difficult to um, think about your own survival and strategize around survival uh, when your mindset is in a state that's unrelated to the problem at hand. So it's almost like our consciousness matches with whatever the circumstance is. And what it, what it calls for, what it needs, how it needs us to engage it in order to um, overcome it or come through it on the other side. This is a survival mechanism. It's a, an evolutionary survival mechanism. And so as we started to get the news and it was unfolding, a lot of people went into that survival mode. And that survival mode shuts off a lot of the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that can, it's responsible for rational uh, thought and logical thought and instead people were engaging more of their um, their lower brain uh, their more primitive brain the part of the brain that's been with us since um, nearly the beginning of any kind of conscious experience um, long before we were able to reason as human beings so this survival part of the brain has been over activated in a lot of people and when that rational logical part of the brain shuts off uh, we start making decisions that are illogical and irrational. One of those was going and stocking up on toilet paper. Now, I think it's a little weird that toilet paper was the thing that was selected as the thing to go after because um, it really doesn't have much to do with keeping yourself safe. But again, people were thinking irrationally. And in order to feel some sense of okayness uh, during this immense uh, wave of discomfort that came from all this news coming in, 
people sought after some way to control their experience because the world was throwing their experience out of control. And uh, we as humans like to feel homeostatic. We like to feel in balance. And so when we're feeling way out of whack, we do things to make us feel more in control or more balanced or have like some sense of agency over what's going on. And so this is what I think people did. They went out and they did what they could. They spent their money and they shopped and, um, you know, one person probably saw another person stocking up on toilet paper and it was just like a chain reaction, like a domino effect. And then everybody started doing it. And social media certainly, certainly didn't help. Um, neither did, neither did the regular media just, um, sensationalizing this phenomena. But, uh, it was interesting because I didn't have that, didn't have that response um, that I saw most people have. Uh, you know, my survival part of my brain is well evolved. I was in that part of my brain for many, many years, and I'm comfortable there. And so when it switches into that mode, um, I get calmer, um, and that is interesting to me, but not surprising. Um, so it was interesting for me to just sit back and watch people do what they did. And, you know, that's what probably scared me even more than any of this virus stuff. It's just how people act when, um, when shit hits the fan, how people act. And it was, it was kind of scary to see, you know, what people were doing and, and, um, you know, kind of sad, um. But anyway, the good news is people are starting to come out of that and people are starting to switch on their rational brains again. People are making smarter decisions um, in the stores and uh, with their families and things like that. So um, so that's the good news is I think that we're coming out of this. Maybe we're settling a little bit more into this new reality and um, yeah, everything's going to be okay. So... We don't need to be in that survival mind all the time. Let's uh, let's try and t try and take a break from that at least a little bit every day, or else we're we're just gonna go crazy with stress. Um, okay, so what has been on my mind lately? What hasn't been on my mind lately, really? Um, this is this is really I don't know. It's a really interesting time. I think something that, that's been coming across my radar quite often, um, and I think all you guys too, is we hear this term social distancing. And whoever made that up, um, I, I hope they, you know, I hope they just made a mistake. But most people, you know, they don't have an understanding of just how powerful language can be, um, especially for shaping um, the collective consciousness or shaping how society thinks about something. And by using the term social distancing, um, it, what it literally means, um, and what people are probably, you know, it's going right through people's radar. I know it did for me for the first couple of weeks, but, uh, you know, we're not trying to actually socially distance. We're social creatures and we need to still be in contact with each other in order to, um, you know, in order to 
feel balanced, feel healthy, things like that. And so we're not trying to distance from each other socially. What we are trying to do is physical distancing. And I wish they would have used that term uh, because the literal, you know, literal meaning of physical distancing is exactly what we've been ordered to do. Uh, we haven't been ordered to distance ourselves socially from others. Um, it's actually, you know, it's way better for us if we don't distance from each other socially. And I know it's tough during this time. I know for me, switching to almost all my interactions through the computer, it just doesn't feel right. It feels like I'm talking to characters in a video game. I don't get the same sort of, um, I, you know, when I'm talking to someone in person or I'm in the same room with someone, I literally get a, a vibe. I get a feeling. I feel some sort of energy presence um, that my own body interacts with and you know that's where i feel gut feelings and instincts and things like that and i just don't get that through the computer and that's a part of my own social connection uh, that i'm trying to work on and like how do i how do i get that piece uh, for me jujitsu did that a lot uh, gave me an outlet to be you know physical touching other people all the time um, you know in this way and, you know, it does a lot for a human being. It releases all sorts of feel-good chemicals in the brain. Um, and I just, it's really hard to get that these days. So I'm so glad that I have my two big dogs and my wife here. And I hope you all have somebody or a pet uh, that you can get some sort of touch from. It's really important. Um, but that's that's what's been on my mind lately. So let's get into it. Our... our guest today, a very special guest, Dr. Cole Marta. Uh, he's a psychiatrist uh, at the California Center for Psychedelic Therapy. Uh, he's the co-medical director. He does ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. Um, he's also a graduate of the MAPS MDMA training, uh, which is really cool. And uh, he's currently working on phase three MDMA clinical trials in Los Angeles. If you guys want to reach out to him or talk to him more about some of the things that we go over today. You can reach out to him at psychedelic.support or psychedelictherapyca.com. And uh, psychedelictherapyca doesn't have any spaces in it or anything, so go check it out. I hope you guys enjoy the show. It was really fun talking to Cole, and uh, I look forward to talking with him again in the future. Um, so let's get into it. with interesting people. Our mission is to engage the collective mind piece by piece to bring greater clarity of mind to our listeners locally and across the planet and to contribute to broaden the shared experiential knowledge and wisdom of existence. All right, folks, welcome back to Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster, and we're here for episode number 73 with very special guest, Dr. Cole Marta. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, first question is the same question that goes out to everybody, and that is, uh, well, the title of the podcast is Conversations with the Mind. 
So I'm wondering from your perspective, from your individual consciousness, how does that phrase land and sort of what comes up for you around conversations with the mind? Um, I feel uh, the, uh, it feels like a comfortable concept. <laughs> I feel like I personally spend a lot of time with my mind. Uh, I, I tend to live in my mind and uh, um, for better or for worse. And uh, yeah, I think conversations with other minds uh, helps to stretch and uh, exercise those muscles so that it's not like uh, the same muscles getting worked every time. Nice. So you got to switch it up to, it's like, um, you know, in your workouts, you got to switch right. up the routine a little bit. Right. Right. Got to get those muscle fibers that aren't getting activated in the old routine. Nice. Um, so just for the audience and for myself too, um, could you describe sort of uh, what you're doing with, with um, work in consciousness? Yeah. Um, so I'm a, uh, uh, a site investigator on the MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD trial sponsored by MAPS, um, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, we've been working with them specifically uh, for since 2017 is when we started enrolling for a phase two trial. And now we're on the phase three trial. We're just wrapping up one of two and uh, moving on to the second of two. And uh, prior to that, uh, I did, um, I guess primarily my work with consciousness has been in the field of psychedelics. Uh, so prior to that, I published some non-clinical research papers on ketamine, um, which uh, one of the book chapters in the ketamine papers um, what I was co-author on. Um, I, did, I wrote a paper about Ibogaine and, uh, and yeah, just a few non-clinical publications. Um, and, and in my clinical work, um, part of doing that research in, starting in 2013 probably with on ketamine for depression, um, I got to know some clinicians that were working with ketamine already. And so when I finished my psychiatry residency program in 2015 and went into private practice, uh, I had a tremendous mentor um, who showed me how to, the more practical aspects of opening a, a clinic. And I've been trying to focus primarily on working with ketamine-assisted psychotherapy for treatment-resistant depression primarily, but also some PTSD and a few other conditions it seems to be helpful for. Um, and that's come kind of to define my work. I've been able to sort of piecemeal together a little career, um, working primarily just with psychedelic medicines, which is really uh, something my inner child would be very thrilled with. <laughs> my younger self would be very excited to see what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. Yeah, it must feel so fulfilling to to be able to do what you love and to be able to sustain life on this realm anyway by doing it. Yeah, yeah, it's 
it's rewarding, challenging and rewarding. Nice. So you mentioned um, ketamine assisted psychotherapy and I'm, uh, I'm versed in uh, the differences between the different ketamine models, but for some of our listeners who might be interested or might have heard about ketamine as uh, you know an emerging psychedelic therapy that's legal, um, yeah. maybe we could discuss the differences between the models: ketamine-assisted psychotherapy um, versus ketamine-assisted therapy, um, which I think is a bit more prevalent, at least in our area in Colorado. There's a lot more clinics um, that are using the ketamine-assisted therapy model uh, with very little psychotherapy included. Uh-huh. So there these clinics that are more like just offering the ketamine as, as like a, any other kind of treatment? Yeah, just uh, another outpatient, you know, um, folks who come in and uh, it's almost like, it looks like a, almost like a plasma donation room. Um, <laughs> people stacked up next to each other and they just get hooked up to an IV or IM uh, they yeah. have their session and then they leave with very little integration afterwards. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, so the the protocol that I I use in particular is based uh, around the research that I did um, as part of writing that publication um, about as far as you know the frequency, the routes of administration bipolar versus unipolar, lots of sort of data was uh, examined in this um, cumbersome paper that uh, I co-authored. And that informed sort of the procedural part. Um, then the psychotherapy part comes from just, um, for me, uh, my experience working with psychedelic states in being trained and working with maps. Um, seeing what kinds of, what are the core central themes, because the training for that was already happening um, prior to starting the study in 2017. Um, and so a lot of the central themes of the MDMA work um, have been brought into sort of uh, the, the model for, for ketamine, the therapy portion of ketamine. And I think in general, it's always been sort of a gold standard in treating depression and anxiety that medication and psychotherapy are better than any either one individually. Like that's something that's been shown over and over in the data. So, um, you know, coming from a, a mental health background, I think the value of that is uh, even more impressed upon me. It's, it's something that's been hard historically to, to demonstrate empirically in data and stuff. Um, but there is, whenever they do measure for it, they find evidence um, that, it's, that it's better to have therapy than to not have therapy, especially when you're working with people who are in fragile mental health conditions. So, um, you know, one, one sort of concern in general about uh, the, the, the just ketamine model is uh, that if it's treating a mental health condition, if they're not getting therapy there, it's my opinion that, and the evidence suggests too, that, uh, that supporting them psychotherapeutically is, it, it just would be a kind of the gold standard of treatment for mental health conditions. 
Yeah, I agree with you totally. And I'm one to think that therapy is good for anybody uh, in general. Just talking to somebody about your life, you know, in a confidential way, having a confidant, that's so powerful. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I'm wondering if, um, are there are there any specific non-mental health issues that ketamine has a, has its eye on for for being able to help with? I know that it's helped with uh, chronic pain, and um, that's the only one that I, that brings to mind. Uh, maybe neurodegenerative diseases. What were you saying? Anesthesiology, right? Like yeah. its original. Uh, it's 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 on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. It's a it's an invaluable tool um, because of its very unique side effect profile compared to other anesthetic agents. But then, yeah, um, pain, uh, pain, you know, kind of in parallel to the mental health um, sort of rediscovery of the power of the medicine uh, has been in the world of pain management. Uh, it's, it seems to have been, you know, there's, uh, a growing body of literature showing that um, it's helpful for lots of treatment-resistant pain conditions also. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, very promising that this, uh, and still, you know, the stigmas around ketamine being more of a club drug still stand, uh, I think, in, in a lot of the general public, but um, all these breakthrough treatments are coming around, and I think a lot of people are hesitant to sort of switch camps because, you know, what the line we've been fed our entire life is that drugs are bad. Drugs are going to fry your brain. Drugs are going to do this irreparable physical damage. And I know part of your uh, research and specialization in the past has been around psychedelic harms. And I think that that's a huge um, piece that we need to just name when we're doing altered states work is uh, you know, the stigmas and the myths around it versus what we're actually seeing in the data as far as uh, any sort of physical harm coming from these. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're powerful tools. And, uh, and I think that that's a really useful way to think about them because, you know, think about, if we think about other you know, powerful tools, like literally power tools. <laughs> power tools um, can do fantastic things. Um, they can also be harmful. You could use tools, um, you know, like hammers, power drills, can be used to build a house, and they can be used to destroy a house. They can be used to hurt somebody. Uh, they can be used to save somebody. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the way that I've always, that I've come to conceptualize how I look at all drugs, not just psychedelic drugs, um, but all drugs. Uh, you know, there there's a very real clinical use for cocaine. There's a very real clinical use for Wellbutrin. There's a <laughs> real clinical use for um, for ketamine. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not, yeah, I, I think the, the concept of there being evil molecules and not evil molecules is um, something that I, I don't subscribe to very much anymore. Right. Yeah, it comes down to the intention behind the use and 
the, the motivations and all the drivers going into it. I think um, that's, yeah. that's what's going to tell you most about, <laughs> yeah. And dose and frequency and all those things, you know, those are all things that, um, that, you know, are really, really important when we're talking about using them clinically, in my mm -hmm. opinion, you know, we have to know what are our doses, what's safe, what's, what's the safe frequency, safest, you know, mm -hmm. so, so coming from a clinical background, um, and I, you know, I come from a semi-clinical background in psychology, but uh, I'm wondering, you know, if our biases here are coloring this a little bit through those lenses, and I'm wondering if there's, um, if you maybe see any potential out there for um, ketamine to also be a, a healing uh, facilitator or conduit for recreational users as well, people who don't necessarily have um anything that they've identified as wrong with them but may just right. to explore their spiritual selves yeah yeah i think that that's a that's fertile ground like to explore and um i do like to make the distinction you know like um where i feel like i can speak with more certainty is and is in the clinical application for diagnosable mental health disorders. And I feel like, you know, outside of there, I have opinions, um, but I don't think that uh, they're more valuable than anybody else's opinions. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, I do see that as being an area where, I mean, I just, you just hear about you know, these stories where people have had these phenomenal um, growths. You know, there are a lot, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that, you know, there's something to these things in people who don't necessarily have a psychiatric condition. Uh, but I think it's very important to distinguish between the two and for those two sort of um, struggles, so, social struggles to be distinguished from one another you know? yeah yeah i definitely know quite a few people who um recreationally um use ketamine um for spiritual reasons and yeah. uh, for self-growth and you know they're they educate themselves on it beforehand they they take safety precautions you know they read the literature on it which is important right. to do and, they, and they're very well know uh you know they know that they know what they're doing and then um yeah you hear these transformative experiences i've had i've had a number of transformative experiences with recreational ketamine in the past where um you know i feel like i couldn't be where i am today on the path that i'm on spiritually without have had having been informed by those and having integrated those and yeah. uh, it's a part of who i am now and right. You know, I feel like there's there's potential for that out there for for bettering the well. You know, the people who are already see themselves as well, but want to explore something deeper. Yeah, and I think there's you know within you know the, uh, so that that effort doesn't have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak. You know, there is the the precedent already of positive psychology and, you know, in psychology of, uh, you know, 
finding ways to research that, you know, like I think there are, I still, I definitely still um, believe in, in science and scientific method. And I think that would be really interesting place to explore. And I think some of the psilocybin stuff has kind of gone there, you know, like Johns Hopkins studies about, uh, you know, lasting characterological changes. Um, the like, the stuff that's going on in like the religious studies um, collaborations there with bringing leaders from different world religions together and having a shared psilocybin experience. Um, effects on creativity that have been, so I think those are all amazing and fascinating. And um, yeah, I think, I think too, as far as uh, another thought that came up when you were talking about that was, um, I guess one of something that's bubbling anxiety in me is uh, about just where we are right now historically in history is the sense that um, the excitement about psychedelics as a broader topic is moving at an exponentially faster rate than the science can possibly move. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so like in my head, it's like um, too much uh, muffin mix has been put in the muffin cup and like, you know, like the top, the muffin top is just becoming overflowing the <laughs> overflowing the entire oven and inside the cup is all that we know scientifically mm -hmm. um where the excitement is this like ever expanding i mean rapidly accelerating phenomenon and uh, the end both in the in the psychedelic scientific you know like the psychedelic psychotherapy community and the non-scientific community in the psychedelic community, there are a lot of ethical, educated, mindful actors. Um, and as if 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 this is going to grow and become a phenomenon that it could become then it's going to be it's going to move past those people that are like that you know and and i and so my anxiety is about like how we keep everyone safe <laughs> in, when when that that core of people who are mindful and will do the research um when when the demand for it grows to a population outside of that group of people, to the people who uh, won't look into it as much, um, or people who won't treat it with as much care, or, or how do we uh, talk about it and word it in a way with precaution that, you know, keeps it um, that anybody look into it doesn't feel like it is totally safe and harmless to just go explore, you know? Like how do we how do we navigate that in a in a mindful way is is where like most of my conversations lately have been going to. Like as this thing, it just feels like, I don't know, maybe since the 
well, kind of all along, but it really got supercharged um, with the Michael Pollan book. Um, and before that, even the Michael Pollan article. <laughs> um, and now, you know, just the more media attention it gets, the broader the audience awareness becomes. And it's the same amount of people who are, you know, the nerds, if you will, <laughs> the nerds that will, you know, stay home and read about this for, you know, days, weeks, months, years before ever even dipping their toes into something. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I'm right there with you. I, you know, the feeling that I get from, you know, this, whatever it is, psychedelic revolution, psychedelic renaissance, uh, new emergence, reemergence, whatever we want to call it. It feels like, you know, we're this, steam engine train and we were chugging along almost stagnant for so long because of prohibition and now you know we're starting to get speed and even in the last like five or ten years like we are hauling ass down these tracks now yeah and we're we're excited and we're having a blast but we're also sort of afraid like if we go too fast uh too quickly then we're going to derail we're going to go off the tracks and then there's going to be destruction and we're going to have to start all over and right. so this, this idea has come up in a number of my other podcasts I've had with, um, you know, psychedelic practitioners around, you know, how do we create a culture here in the United States around psychedelic use, both recreational and medicinal, um, yes. so that we have our own context, so that we're not appropriating um, inappropriately, you know, from other indigenous cultures and things. We have our own culture here and we need to... We need to define it for ourselves if we're going to move forward in a in a mindful way, like you said. Yeah. Well, my, you know, in my that's a that's a an, an awesome topic, and I think one that um, one that doesn't get talked about often enough. Uh, I was doing an interview one time, um, and this this uh, this concept occurred to me. Uh, of um, scientific bypass, mm -hmm. like spiritual, spiritual bypass. bypass, yeah, or spiritual bypass, but scientific bypass, where science is being appropriated to validate non-scientific things. Uh, it's like, you know, come to this retreat because science has validated MDMA for PTSD in a very select population that's extremely well filtered and. You know, like, you have no idea, like, how hard it is for people to qualify for these studies. And then, so to extrapolate that to, like, MDMA is good for everyone who's been traumatized is, like, an enormous scientific leap no scientist would ever defend, you know? Um, and so it's, in my mind, it's similar to the spiritual bypass concept of, like, no, 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 no. Like, this isn't science, nor does it necessarily want to be, like, you know? Uh, curanderas and uh, Huichol Indians and Huitis uh, and uh, you know the shamans of South America are like they have entire contexts outside of the Western medical and scientific model that are uh, that I don't think we need to use this science to try to validate that. I don't think it needs that validation. 
I think that's a very different thing. Um, and I also think we have our own, we have our own sort of, we do have our own Western medical, you know, those of us who identify as Western, um, you know, Western cult, Westerners, I guess. <laughs> we do have our own history now, and I think it gets overlooked, um, you know, uh, I think it was uh, uh, Mescaline was first, you know, identified in the late 1800s in a Western, you know, model. Uh, psilocybin and LSD since the 30s, 40s. Um, the whole scientific process being applied to that discovery through the 50s and 60s until the 70s, you know, there was there was a fully functioning psychiatric clinic in Maryland, the Maryland Psychiatric Research Center, um, that treated thousands of patients, did dozens of uh, studies that published, was, it was an entire campus that did nothing but psychedelics um, research and clinical practice. And so, and we've learned our lessons from there. We're still dealing with the same, um, we're still dealing with the same cultural contexts and things like if we want to make, if, if the desire is for it to have legitimacy within this context, then it just, it gets, to me, it gets very muddy when we try to mix these cultural contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd agree too. And I'd say that in our culture too, you know, we definitely have the medical story, right? We have yeah. um, the medical model to psychedelics and how we're using it for mental health and physical health and things like that and spiritual health, even with the medical model. And then there's this whole other story that's, that's also a part of our Western culture, which is recreational use of psychedelics and mind-altering substances with yeah. their own rituals that go into those practices yeah. and their own interpretation. Yeah, and so I think we need to see that both are happening and acknowledge that both are happening and that's not going to stop and then start to have conversations with all aspects of this culture to try and put a boundary around it, at least a transparent boundary that can grow or, or whatever as, as our definitions shift. But I think we need to, as a culture, come together and figure out what the hell are we going after here? What are we, what are we doing with these things? Yeah. Otherwise it won't be legitimate. Yeah. And, and how do we, yeah. What, what are we trying to achieve? How do we know when we're doing it? Mm -hmm. How do we know when we're not doing it? Um, how do we know yeah, um, it's weird because I never thought of myself as like a uh, an institutionalist, <laughs> like someone who believed in institutions, and you know, um, and uh, yeah, I've always prior prior to you know the years of work now in this field. Um, I didn't see the value that I that I see now in having ethics committees and review boards and oversight and it's it's very similar to it essentially is you know sort of a community um, 
uh, I guess that's something that could be uh, could be harnessed. It's still, there's a there is a community. It's just when it's as long as these are uh, illegal drugs, as long as they're still criminalized, it's harder to enforce any kind of you know. When a psychotherapist, for example, violates some ethical code, their license can be taken away, and they can be pub they will be publicly shamed. Like you can go online and look up any practitioners, like any complaints that have been levied against any practitioner on their state board, for example. You know, like in Colorado, there's there's one of you know there's one of these boards. And that's a diversion tactic, as you know, unpleasant as that is. <laughs> it, it, it it serves a function of of keeping everyone um, acting with integrity, you know. And yeah, yeah. It seems like a community of uh, checks and balances, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, that's really hard to do in this black or gray market, because. How do you enforce rules in a black or gray market? You know, historically it's like been disastrous how you enforce rules in black markets. Um, and so we don't want to go that route. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, if any community can do it, this one, <laughs> it'll be a, it's a big task to figure out how we, how we police this thing so that it can be handled within these communities rather than outside policing and outside systems. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's good. I think it all starts with education. Uh, I always go back to education as, you know, educating people and, and informing them so that we're not making choices from ignorant places, you know, yeah. um, and I'm, I'm the first one to admit, you know, how little I know about anyone else's experience, but uh, I also, you know, we're all experts in our own experience too. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Informed consent. Yeah. You know, that's the, and the, in the trials we do, it's, you know, it's a very big part of our process is the informed consent process. Also in our clinical practice, uh, the informed consent process is a cornerstone of providing a safe container. Um, and so that's, you know, that's at least a model that uh, can be utilized. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, even using terminology from maybe other cultures like container or like ritual or um, ceremony or any of those things can be incorporated and almost layered on top of medical model. I mean, in your clinic, um, do you do IM or IV uh, treatments? Primarily IM. So IM, yeah. So, I mean, there's a whole ritual that goes into that, you know, um, the clinician drawing it out of the, out of the bottle you know, maybe saying a prayer over it uh, together beforehand, um, you know, putting it in and, and taking the plunger out. And all these things are part of the, the Western ritual around it. Um, mm -hmm. The informed consent, creating container, the, uh, the professional, yeah, the relationship, the rapport you build, building yeah. that container. So I see how we can utilize um, traditional wisdom around these medicines without appropriating and doing disrespect to them. We're, you know, we're paying tribute and paying respect by 
acknowledging that these things are real and they have real effects on the experience itself and then taking that into account into in our own models as well you know incorporating set and setting on a heavy note you know and i think that's important um but at your clinic you mostly see treatment resistant depression primarily yeah okay you know we we there's basically things that there's evidence for we're really trying to like maintain that boundary and that line um uh, or we're really protecting that for our clinic because we want to continue to you know we believe very much in the, the scientific process and i think it's important to protect that process when it comes to being a medical clinic you know like if we're going to call ourselves a medical clinic then i want to hold it our practices to the same standard as any other medical practice yeah it's a uh, you know in my mind it's so kind of fun and funny to to intermix my concepts around medical model and yeah. transpersonal work like these two things coming together uh, in a way that um, you know is, is it reminds me of what I've read in history books of medicine as it was practiced like back in the Asclepions in Greece where you know mm -hmm. practitioners were giving out mind-altering substances in a medical practice and having these healing experiences and how far away from that we have come in the medical model now where I think the majority of the, the field of medicine probably does not even, um, you know, speak to the spiritual realm or, you know, right. does not integrate the spiritual in their biopsychosocial models yet. Right. Right. I mean, certainly uh, less so. I mean, in, I think that's one of the interesting things about this, you know, uh, this niche field in medicine is uh, the first time I saw um, a presentation on psilocybin uh, at my residency program, um, you know, they were, they were saying, in the presentation they were talking about, you know the mystical experience and somebody in the audience was like well how do you measure the mystical experience and it was just ma matter of fact there is a measure of mystical states questionnaire you know like it's pretty remarkable i think we can uh accommodate you know spiritual experience experiential factors um within the scientific model but of course yeah i think uh, language will limit exactly how precisely we can capture those things, but it's, I think it's a pursuit worth undertaking, like, you know, that is something that's been demonstrated in, for example, uh, Matthew Johnson's paper about um, psilocybin for smoking cessation, and it was, the title is uh, Psilocybin Occasioned Mystical Experience correlated with smoking cessation. So it was not psilocybin, it wasn't correlated to dose. What they found was the extent, the sort of the degree of mystical experience predicted their success, not, not dose. So like 
uh, other studies have established that like heavy meditators score higher on these mystical questionnaires um, at baseline likely, but definitely on uh, with psilocybin. Um, and so, <clears throat> so I think it still behooves us to try, at least within medicine, um, to establish uh, ways of testing these ideas, testing these theories. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's not undoable, I think, to, to study. Uh, you know, there's a, there are entire fields of academic study dedicated to spiritualism and religion, philosophy. Um, and so, and, you know, I can only imagine they have their own whole um, system of measures and units and stuff. Yeah, and um, you know, there's definitely something to be said about measuring whether a mystical state has occurred or not, um, or you know how intense it was. Um, so I assume you've you've read most of Johns Hopkins uh, mystical state experience um, research, right, with psilocybin, showing that it was uh, you know the the uh, what was it the the variable that showed um, the closest correlation to long-term well-being changes um, in patients. Did you see that one? Uh, I'm not sure. Is it openness? The like? Um, yeah, that was the that was one of the um, the ones where it, it talked about those character uh, personality shifts. Um, right. Yeah, and, and the one you referred to with the um, smoky sensation, that was uh, not the one I was referring to. I think in that study, too, a big, a big component to that was that the, the participants had the intention to quit smoking going into the session, too. So that, was, that, that expectation was definitely a part of it. Um, but the Roland Gr or not, um, you know, uh, Jones Hopkins came out with this, uh, this mystical states um, and I'll just I'll just share it for the for the audience. But uh, they tested psilocybin, and um, folks who had a mystical state experience, uh, most of them said that it was um, one of the most important oh. formative experiences in their life. I think some of them said that it was uh, the yeah the most important experience of their life. And I think I think it was a, a high rate, like eighty percent of them, um, even long term, said that they did not regret the experience; that it was only beneficial. Um, right. So, this idea, and this is sort of where my dissertation centers around, is studying this mystical experience um, through a social sciences lens. Um, mm -hmm. But really, I want to try and take uh, that that work that Johns Hopkins has done around mystical state experience and psilocybin and see if we can't apply some of those similar concepts to the mystical state experience as experienced through ketamine assisted psychotherapy. Uh -huh. uh, like you said, these are different tools, but many of these tools can take us into those mystical states. And uh, I'm thinking that, that that mystical state itself is probably pretty damn important, especially in, in ketamine therapies as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty established that ketamine does provide that. And I I want to say Volinviter might have done that. Um, Franz Volinviter mm -hmm. uh, uh, in Switzerland. 
my, I, you know, with the, um, the scale was the five dimensions of altered states of consciousness scale, mm -hmm. the 5DASC. Um, I believe he did like a series showing, like he did it with LSD, he did it with psilocybin, I believe he did ketamine too. But, uh, but yeah, I believe ketamine provides that experience, certainly. I mean, people have described clinically having experiences, you know, that are very much the uh, ego disillusion experience um, that, you know, independently arising without, you know, with as much um, objectivity on my part as I can maintain, uh, people reporting basically the list of the altered states <laughs> experiences. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think the ketamine, ketamine can uh, provide that, those experiences. Um, and I'm curious, uh, like, For, for some reason, in, you know, in, in our discussion now, um, this kind of thought that has been bubbling, you know, as Western civilizations, as Western cultures have kind of moved away from organized religions, has there been a uh, measurable uh, need for something you know, is there something, you know, is there a baby thrown out with the bathwater kind of thing? <laughs> As people were disillusioned with their particular organized religion or faith, was there something in there? Because a lot of, a lot of those things that are championed about the way that indigenous cultures administer psychedelics, are things that take place in a church or, you know, in, in Western uh, cultures, you know, that's where our ceremonies are. It's where people make meaning of tremendous loss and it's where they make meaning of tremendous love. It's where they make meaning of community and togetherness and ceremony. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder if that, if there's some, my intuition tells me that there's some relationship there between the sort of loss of the value placed on those things um, uh, as the uh, agnosticism and atheism has grown and then this sort of is there is there a connection? My intuition is that there there is that people are looking for something that they used to get there, um, but for legitimate or illegitimate reasons, they've moved away from you know an increasing numbers away from those organized uh, religious entities that uh, used to be the place where those things happened, and we have these you know, decrease emphasis on the psycho-spiritual aspect of life in general. Yeah. You know, I see both, um, you know, an increase in materialism and capitalist ideologies and things in our culture. But uh, when looking into, I was just recently wrote a paper and, and was looking into uh, post-materialist theory 
Um, and they talk about, you know, what happens when the basic needs, based off of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when the basic needs are met, where do people's motivations go? And they tend to go to the higher levels of self-actualization, self-transformation, and these types of things. And we are increasingly materialistic in our society, but because of that, we have, for the largest, for the large part, I mean, if you look at the statistics, um, we've never experienced uh, a greater period of prosperity in all of human history. Even with all the poverty and, and starvation still in the world, um, yeah. per capita, like we are, we are utilizing our resources in a way that has, that is feeding and meeting those basic needs of most people. And so I, um, you know, I've also looked into some statistics too, where what you're saying is exactly happening. Like more and more people are going and seeking uh, mental health clinicians and professionals for spiritually related issues. Um, not, not so much for, um, you know, things that depression. Yeah. Right. Like people are seeking that. Like, you know, depression, depression, the, the syndrome that we have come to define, um, as clearly as we can. <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel that, you know, maybe it's because of the specific, you know, um, well, in my training, I saw a broader uh, uh, patient population. Um, but yeah, it, it does feel like a lot of people come, come you know, with the self-report of depression and they certainly are depressed mood, like their mood would be described as depressed, but they don't necessarily have the appetite changes, the energy changes, the motivation changes, the uh, anhedonic aspect, the guilt and shame, suicidal thoughts. It's more like a malaise um, and, uh, and an existential kind of depression. Uh, we see a, a lot of that, certainly. I think they're not mutually exclusive either, I guess I should say. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. And so, so I brought up that mystical state uh, research because um, I feel like it's been well justified so far in the literature that that mystical state uh, experience is super important to the process. Um, my question, taking it a little further in my dissertation, is is more centered around uh, what are some of the psychological antecedents or contextual precursors that can lead to the mystical state experience, right? So in your clinic, I'm sure you have patients where you give, you know, you've given them the same dose over two different sessions. And in one session, they'll have mystical state experience, whereas in the other, they might not. And yeah. so, so I'm trying to figure out like what might be pre-correlates to or preconditions that cause more mystical experiences, whether it's belief system, in, you know, intention, expectation, um, you know, the set and setting, all these things, uh, and what, I don't know, I feel like it's, I feel like if we can figure out what are some of the precursors, then we might be able to enhance the treatment protocols to give more people this really powerful mystical experience more frequently. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, um, I don't have any, like, uh, strong data to back this up, but I can say, um, that in my experience, the, uh, the, we do a series, um, 
twice a week for four weeks is sort of the default process. Um, and then maintenance is could be anywhere from zero to monthly or it really that varies case to case, but um, but in the series, as people move through the series, they tend to uh, have a um, have more powerful experiences. And uh, so early on, I had kind of this working theory that um, that it had something to do with uh, secure, you know, attachment model. Um, that as they were improving in their depressive or anxiety symptoms and feeling more secure in the room and developing a stronger relationship, that that was allowing them to uh, to go further, to go deeper. I think ketamine compared to LSD or psilocybin, um, people do have a tremendous ability to not necessarily stop the experience, but compared to LSD or psilocybin, they can not they can control the intensity. Mm -hmm. I think more so. Um, like there's no making it go away, but they can have just a disorienting experience if they resist entirely, right? Um, but I think more recently. I, I feel like it's, um, it's getting them comfortable with the not knowing. Like it's, um, it's overcoming the uh, experiential avoidance that, you know, at, at those first sessions, uh, they don't know, especially if they're totally psychedelically naive, you know, they have they have no lay of the land and so there's a lot of not letting go of not going with the experience not being open um, not being uh, yeah not trusting the experience uh, not being able to let go not being able to be open um, and the more you can do to get them, you know, there's even, that's even uh, a potential, that's even a suggested mantra is trust, let go, be open. Um, going into the session, if they can get to where they really can trust the experience, let go and be open, which I think, um, I think it, it really helps, um, it's been a powerful part of um, this strategy of staying very scientific in the clinic here and staying very medical, um, you know, being able to answer people's questions in the same way I would if their question was about sertraline, you know, like being able to speak with that same kind of authority and confidence. Um, provides a level of trust in the person that I think um, is hard to hard to measure. But I think it I think that that allows 
I think that's an important part of the way that we're doing it here is people feel that they can trust, let go, be open in a in a context that's familiar to them. You know, they're in a medical clinic or speaking that that language with them as they're used to. That's so interesting. Um, yeah, I was thinking definitely about um, the ability to let go. And I call it an ability very consciously because I feel like it can be trained into somebody. Um, I come from a background, I have a master's degree in sport and performance psychology. And so I'm all about, um, you know, studying optimal mindsets of like surgeons and Olympic athletes and stuff like that. And learning how we can train the mind as a tool in in and of itself to work for us. And one of those tools, especially in these spaces is that ability to let go. And so I'm thinking maybe, uh, you know, if, if we can, you know, other, other forms of practice like meditation and things like that, I think could help people learn to let go more into the unfamiliar. Um, and so I think it's possible that we can in the future design even pre-session training protocols where we prime people's minds and give them the skills necessary to um, let go and to navigate the, the spaces and to give them um, the confidence while always you know, building that supporting relationship. Because for me anyway, it's been difficult for me to let go into those experiences unless I feel completely safe um, to, to let go. I'm always presented with the question in my uh, ketamine experiences of, you know, it says, you know, we're about to show you what you want to see. Uh, are you ready to let go of, of what you know um, to be shown what you don't know. And, you know, that's always the jumping off point. And you have to, with blind faith, jump into that. Um, and what you find, what I always find every single time is pure love. So it's, sure. it's never, it's never anything um, bad that I, that I go into. Yeah. I was, um, it's interesting that you used the word faith. That, um, that was a recent big, you know, epiphany and conversation I had with uh, one of the co-founders here, Ashley Booth, um, and and we had a little discussion about is that faith or is that trust? Because what is the faith in? I think it's faith. <laughs> I was arguing for faith because you know in that experience or in any experience, I feel like um, faith is you know been co-opted by like religion and stuff like that but i think you know and, and it's actually you know the way we're we're talking about having faith it's it's really like feeling secure it you know so the way she was defining it was trust is uh, learned through previous experience and faith is without that evidence right and in these kinds of experiences, you don't have any evidence for the unknown by definition, right? <laughs> and uh, and and uh, for whatever reason, you know, this was coming up in a in a thought exercise um, that I was doing around winter time, and it was like, this is this is this an, you know philosophically an antidote to anxiety, mm-hmm. faith. You know, like 
I, I'm a believer that um, much of anxiety is um, our minds being stuck in the future, you know, trying to prepare, trying to prevent, trying to safeguard against something, you know, that uh, a lot of anxiety is about preventing something bad, right? Um, and so having faith is almost like, you know, they're hard to hold at the same time. They're hard to, you know, they, they almost seem mutually exclusive to me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but another term I used to use um, in kind of trying to prepare people for the ketamine experiences is surrender. Mm -hmm. But I think trust, let go, be open is kind of what I've adopted more recently. Trust, let go, be open. Um, anything you can do to, to reinforce those things, I think, helps people have, yeah, yeah. I think what, what holds people back is that resistance to letting go. You know, yeah. they, they manifest their own um, struggle in that space. Uh, by basically trying not to have the experience that would happen if they can surrender or let go. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe you can help me here for a second. Um, so I've been, you know, part of my dissertation, I'm trying to formulate these interview questions, right, for this qualitative research project. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, from your clinical ex uh, experience around this idea of faith and letting go, um, what could be some questions that I might ask folks who have had a mystical experience? Um, maybe, um, you know, what have your experiences in the past been around letting go sort of to build up my data set, um, to inform like, what was this person's psychological strengths and toolkits around letting go prior to the experience? What do you think could be some useful things? Um, uh, I think it could be useful to, uh, you're talking about preparing somebody? Um, no, more like in a reflective practice. So after someone has had a mystical experience, I'm trying to figure out what, yeah, what, uh, what was their mindset like before around letting go that allowed them to have that experience? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I think um, it'd be useful to have people who do, and I think it'd be useful to have those people who do and do not have those experiences and asking them a lot of the same questions about that, like um, asking them about where they were with regard to letting go. Was there something they were holding on to? Was there an expectation that they had? Um, a lot of um it can be really useful prior to um explore what people's expectations are uh, you know are there things that they are hoping are not going to come up because hoping they don't come up will probably make them come up mm -hmm. <laughs> um you know so those kinds of you know between the two groups were there things that they were, they, were there expectations? Um, were there, um, yeah, where were they 
with regard to expectations, um, fears, um, prior experience, uh, experience with letting go. I mean, I think at least, you know, mindfulness meditation is um, a lot about um, being able to not attach, you know, to let go of thoughts and sort of not attached to the monkey mind. So what, asking them what their previous experience is with practices of letting go. Nice. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for this project. Uh, it's, it's coming together um, and it, hopefully I'll be running it here in a, a year and a half, two years. So I'll keep you informed on that one. Cool. Are you um, going to do it in a clinical, are you going to like questionnaires? Yeah, so um, I'm tied in um, a little bit with the ketamine clinics here in my area. And so, um, you know, I plan on um, sort of integrating it into their already going clinical practice. So they're, they're starting to implement the uh, mystical states questionnaire just as part of the, the normal protocol. Um, and so I would just come in, you know, as and, and uh they would offer, you know, voluntary enrollment in this research study um, before they, they enroll in their treatments. And then if they agree, then I would provide um, an interview uh, about a week after each session just to sort of recap the experience and go over some of these uh, possible preconditions. And it also, you know, the interview itself also provides space for further integration and gives direct benefit to the clinic and to the patients themselves. And um, so I'm hoping that, you know, I can be doing good for these, these participants in research who are also patients, but also be collecting uh, data without stepping on the toes of the clinicians doing the work. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, and so we've been talking a lot about protocols and things like this, but, uh, I kind of want to get into um, what the ketamine space is like, right? Because there's people out there listening uh, who are like, yeah, this is all well and good, but the unknown is freaking scary. Like, right. what is it going to be like? And so, um, you know, I've shared, I've shared a number of my personal experiences with ketamine on the show. Um, and from, from stories you've heard, from um, things you've seen in your work, um, can we can we put um, you know our limited words to the task of of describing what ketamine space is like? That's the million dollar question. What is it like? Um, I can say uh, even with the same person with the same dose and the same playlist and the same room, it can be very different um, from one session to the next. Um, in either direction, you know, as far as it could be more intense, it could be less intense. Um, that seems hard to predict. It, what seems universal is the, um, it's an altered state, certainly. Uh, dissociation even, isn't even described universally in my experience, but most people feel a dissociation from their usual self or their body. Um, some people have 
profound visual phenomenon. Other people see absolutely nothing, and you know that that has come up in in integration sessions, like some that they were expecting some you know visual phenomenon that they'd heard described, and then other people you know that seems to be what they what happens to them every time. Um, some people have a sensation of movement that's not uncommon um, sort of maybe in a, in a non-frightening way, a feeling of sort of falling backward um, or turning to one side or another. Um, and uh, it, it, a lot of people describe a fundamental change in their relationship to their sort of psychological self. Um, some people find it a welcome break from their usual self, how they uh, experience themselves and their thoughts. Uh, a lot of people have like a melting or quieting of the monkey mind um, and the sort of chattery thoughts. Uh, and most people describe, you know, have a profound experience. Um, there have been uh, ego disillusion, as it's been described before, where people feel uh, the dissolving of their identity. They forget who they are, where they are, what they are, and in a, in as non-anxiety inducing a way as that could be experienced. Um, there does seem to be less anxiety in their reports than I hear from LSD or psilocybin. Like, uh, I think those experiences are very um, well documented uh, with LSD and psilocybin, but even in the altered states of consciousness questionnaire, one of the main categories, if I recall, is you know, a sense of anxiety at the loss of sense of self. Um, whereas, though I've, I've witnessed that in some patients, uh, some anxiety over that phenomenon, it's more broadly than just not knowing what's happening. Um, and I have definitely uh, seen a lot of people make that transition without any anxiety that they felt very comfortable transitioning to that place and reporting a sense of boundlessness or connect, connection or connectivity to everything. Um, depressed patients a lot of times have described uh, in the integration um, a sense of seeing a broader perspective, like depression can be very isolating can make your world very small and your thoughts circles very tight and small. Um, and uh, I've heard multiple people separated in time and space uh, report, you know, being in a familiar place that was larger and reminded them of a whole life inside them outside of that world that they had just a small piece of their universe and that being a very useful thing to reflect on.
session. Yeah, so a lot of different places, a lot of different spaces. Uh, I know across my use, you know, I I started using ketamine back in my teenage years, uh, 16, 17, 18, things like that recreationally. And I was having uh, every anything from like uh, what would be similar to like near-death or out-of-body experiences. Um, I astral projected a couple times and saw mm -hmm. things happening in different places that were happening where I wasn't present. Um, I, I've had benign experiences where nothing's happened and I've had experiences where I've opened my eyes in the ketamine space and see everything um, made out of Legos you know, going into like a Legoland. And uh, I've, it was funny, I went on um, like trip reports or something online and other people were, were reporting seeing this Legoland too. So it was kind of kind of funny uh, to see some, some similarity between different experiences too. I think that's always um, interesting to look at, sort of like how Rick Straussman looked at the similarities between different people's DMT experience. Um, so I think there there can be some some similar constructs um, found in that space between patients. That's really interesting. Oh, I lost you there. I'm sorry. Oh, you that's right. Reports, you, you discovered the Lego and universe and you went on trip reports and what happened? And uh, yeah, I found that other people had had that same uh, visual experience of just seeing <laughs> everything made of Legos. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I've heard. Um, uh, I heard, um, well, at least uh, in my mind, the image reminds me of some experiences I've heard people give of DMT of being in like a computer chip city is something I keep hearing, mm -hmm. <laughs> like a city made of blocks and lights and things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, um, Something I've had people report to, and I'm curious, is like a sense of telepathy or some unspoken connection, a sense of sacredness happening in the room with, I, I typically work with a co-therapist. Um, more often now, uh, they'll have, uh, I'll, I'll just administer medicine um, and the therapist will sit with them, but um, regardless of the particular setup, uh, people feeling a sense of like they're connecting in a way that's very, very meaningful and unspoken. I'm curious how you have experienced others who may be present physically in the, you know, sort of default uh, space. Um, yeah, with regard to that, like uh, any this illusion of boundaries between you and others in a very like um where it seems like people's ego structures are still intact in this space you know like uh i've had patients tell me like i'm still me i'm not like part of this unified collective consciousness that happens to some people of the ego dissolution experience it's like no they're still them i'm me i'm in the room but we're you know were somehow unified in some thought process or goal or struggle that they're having internally. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had experiences where I know there are certain people in the room and I will see myself as, yeah, being 
unified with them. But to me, that still speaks to it being a, a unity consciousness experience, you know, where, where you see the individual ego, but you also know that they are you and you are them. Uh-huh. And there, you know, so there's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I just real quick, what do you think are your thoughts or what are your thoughts on um, the potential for mixing uh, certain um, medicine or methodologies? Like maybe, uh, I mean, you have experience with MDMA, so maybe uh, someone takes some MDMA early in the session to open them up more to letting go and then you administer ketamine so that they can go really deep and mixing those two or maybe mixing uh, ketamine with psilocybin to do something similar with the psilocybin and helping that letting go process. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, like this is, this is the frustrating part. I think uh, there's potential there and I think we owe it, if we're going to if we're going to introduce mixing medicines to a clinical population, then we owe it to that population to do the research first, mm-hmm. and that's frustratingly slow. <laughs> but you know, um, you know, I, it's a very difficult uh, emotional burden to you know to be simultaneously in a place where these medicines aren't available to so many people um, and feeling a sense of their potential and not being able to provide it to them. And one way I keep my, uh, my spirits up despite that is I envision 30 years down the line, there will be even more people and even more of them <laughs> will be you know, if we can do the, if we can do the due diligence to make sure that we aren't experimenting on people, you know, to me, it's the, it comes back to the informed consent process. People know that this hasn't been well studied when we mix these things. And again, it's also, this is also in relation to the clinical mental health population and within medicine. I want to be able to speak as confidently about introducing a second substance as I do about having the first substance in the first place. And that requires this very slow process of doing the research. But there's, you know, there's such fertile ground there to explore. I hope that we can get to the point where you know, the grant money that's available for everything else becomes available for these kinds of questions, then it won't go so slow. It'll still go slower than people who are suffering right now want it to go, and myself included. You know, I don't want it to go this slow. <laughs> but in 20 years and 30 years, a lot of those same people will still be suffering, and these things, these, these questions will have been answered, and these things will be available. That's, that's kind of the way I have to conceptualize it. Yeah, and I think we can still talk about it theoretically, um, yeah. and and there's certainly people out there already mixing substances and then re- putting out their reports. I think there can be studies done currently where where we uh, you know sample and interview folks who are already doing these things recreationally and sort of figure out what benefits are they getting and what do what should we be looking into when we eventually do get to those 
uh, clinical trials, we need to have a basis, a uh, theoretical framework for, for what right. are we going to even explore based off of what people's experiences are already. Right. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, based on that, like what I would like to, uh, what I would imagine would be useful in combining the two would probably be, you know, for de depression in particular. You know, ketamine's shown to be so helpful for depression, primarily, and um, and the the MDMA. You know, I could see the MDMA's qualities making it so much easier to trust, let go, and be open. Um, that really the MDMA could could really support the ketamine work, mm -hmm. you know, um, because between the two, like MDMA is very much, in my opinion, works very much on the ego consolidate, like when your ego is intact, like it doesn't dissolve the ego, you know, it's a phenethylamine, it's a stimulant class at its core, it, it, you know, at least that the doses that we're talking about that we're studying causes a very intense experiencing of the egoic self. Um, it may even amplify that, and whereas the ketamine is closer to the, the classic tryptamines in that it dissolves the egoic self. So it's like your the MDMA is what happened to me, Cole Marta, when I went to medical school and the horrible thing that happened there or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, whereas the psilocybin and the ketamine is like, who the hell is Cole and what is medical school? <laughs> you know, that's, and, and that's not ultimately important. You know, like the lessons are very different and the healing, therefore, I just feel like comes from very different places. The healing comes, the MDMA, I think, can, can help functioning with, I think it's so helpful. My personal opinion is it can be so helpful for PTSD because it can, it can help people fundamentally feel safer again. Um, it can make people feel connected again. Um, at least that's my hope. And and the connected to their to this world, you know, to this um, to our day to day lives, to real relationships with others. Um, and then the the tryptamines and, and and ketamine seem to get more into that psycho-spiritual realm of feeling a connection and a purpose and a, you know, a connectivity. So psychologically, I feel like they are approaching from very different angles, but, um, you know, from the phase two data that's been published, uh, the MDMA, the depression, the secondary scales that they measured, um, depression seems to improve too. We don't know if that's, I don't think it's, the studies have been done yet to see if that's independent of improvement in PTSD. And we're talking about people who have been diagnosed with PTSD, but they do depression measures before and after in that population in those studies. 
and this uh, and there's at least a signal worth exploring that uh, MDMA could possibly be useful for depression independent of uh, PTSD. So yeah, I think there are lots of like amazing ways to combine these things and things worth things worth studying, things worth um, yeah, things worth investigating. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time today, um, but I want to thank you again so much for spending your time and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with myself and with the audience. And if anybody wants to reach out and get a hold of you or um, contact the Center for California or the California Center for Psychedelic Therapy or anything else you're involved, um, maybe uh, let them know how they can do that real quick. Yeah, uh, our website is psychedelictherapyca, as in California, dot com. And uh, the how to get in touch with us is on there. And um, the, uh, our main admin's email is admin at psychedelictherapyca.com. Uh, and uh, people interested in MDMA studies, psilocybin studies, I think uh, clinicaltrials.gov is a uh, is a governmental um, open uh, available database of all clinical research that's happening that involves human subjects. Uh, and you can, they have a search engine, you can put in, you know, psilocybin depression, and you can learn about every study that's happening, every study that's recently closed, every study that's expecting to open soon. So that's an important thing I think people should know about. Um, yeah. It's great. Yeah, I feel like we just uh, scratched the surface and I'd love to have you on the show sometime in the future if you'd be willing. Yeah, anytime. Great. It was, it was a true pleasure. I'll probably see you in the circles that we run around in. And uh, yeah, thank you for being on the show. All right. Take care. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Cole, for being on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you and um, you enlightened me on a, on a ton of stuff. Um, with all your experience. It was amazing. Um, for all you listeners out there, I hope you guys got something positive, productive from this podcast today. I know I certainly did. Please continue to listen, like, and share all of our social media stuff, and go to our Mind Ops YouTube page where you can find video of these uh, podcast episodes. Um, go check it out. And until next time, stay healthy. Peace, folks. Conversations with the Mind podcast is sponsored, as always, by MindOps.com. That's M-I-N-D hyphen O-P-S.com. Come check us out. We're an eclectic counseling company providing both mental health and mental performance services to individuals, small and large groups, teams, businesses, and military individuals through face-to-face -face sessions or at a distance using phone or confidential video chat apps. We bring a unique Buddhist Western lens and specialize in general psychotherapy for all mental difficulties, sport and performance psychology for performance enhancement through mental training, addiction counseling for any maladaptive or destructive habits, and psychedelic integration therapy to make the most from your visionary medicine work. We're available as well for corporate workshops to address the needs of your employees' wellness. 
Thank you for listening to the show, and please go check us out, mindops.com and the MindOps YouTube page.